Welcome and thank you for joining us here for the Bread of Life, a listener-supported program of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, give us the account of the last moments of Earth's history. A great white throne is revealed above the Earth in its atmosphere. Seated on it is one whose face radiates such holy, perfect, powerful righteousness that the earth and heaven find no place before him, and they flee, and all that remains before him are the resurrected, unsaved dead from all history who await his final judgment and their assigned place in the lake of fire. This will happen. God will hold to account all before him. Now, this likely marks a moment in the history of the universe and God's created order that's spoken of in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. There, in verse 10, we're told that the earth will burn up and all of the works within it will burn up. And then we read, and also the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And so God establishes Himself and reveals the throne of His final judgment, and earth and heavens are consumed with fire. And now, before His face, stand all those unrighteous who have died without Christ. Whose face scatters all of creation? Who is it that sits to judge, finally, all persons for all time? Who is this? It's the Lord Jesus Himself. This is the one who walked on the earth without sin. This is the one who died on the cross for sinful men and rose again from the grave and who has been exalted, the Bible says, to the right hand of God on high. This is the one who we sketch out the image of in our minds as gentle and meek and mild. This is the one that we put sandals upon and we watch him as he goes around and touches the eyes of the blind and gives them sight and speaks with such a dove-like voice. This is the one who lays his hands upon little babies to bless them in the temple scenes that we might sketch in our minds. But here this one is exalted as the holy, glorified God of gods. This one is exalted as a glorious expression of a morally exalted, exonerated being. And now he sits in judge over all the human race. I have to tell you this. If I'm going to be judged by an individual, if I have to stand before an individual who judges me on my own merits, I'd rather that man have my own peculiar sins. I'd rather him struggle with my own dilemmas and trials. I'd rather his character be shadowed by the same things that shadow my character. We look for and we have an image of justice in which the judge and justice is blindfolded so that he can't be a respecter of persons when he looks out. But this judge judges with eyes wide open and he sees all men and he sees all of their sins and he is apart from it himself. Pure and holy in every way. Sinless and perfect. That's the way the final judgment will take place. This final judgment of the world by Jesus Christ is actually a regular theme of the apostles' teaching. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul said that God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. And He has given assurance of this by raising Him from the dead. Do you remember Paul said that in the city of Athens on Mars Hill? 
And when he said it, men began to depart from him. They didn't want to believe it. There is a man that God has risen up from the dead, and he is appointed a day when this man will judge all other men. And now is the time, Paul says, for you to repent and believe. Peter gives the same message in Acts chapter 10, and pronouncing that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ has been ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. Where did they get this idea from? Well, the Lord Jesus himself gave them the idea. John records in John chapter 5, verse 22, that the Lord Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. It's the Lord Jesus Christ now that sits upon this great white throne. This is the moment when the rejected love of God turns to wrath. Here's the moment when the irrevocable sentence that was made in John chapter 3, verse 36 is completely and utterly instituted. There it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And on this day, God's wrath, God's wrath, which is God's settled, consistent, constant antagonism towards sin and evil, God's wrath releases itself in a final, settled verdict upon all of those who stand before this great white throne. Who are those who are before the throne? That's the next thing we have to look at secondly. Who are those before the great white throne? Well, I would argue before you that these are all of the unrighteous dead. These are all of those who have died in their sins. We read here, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. What does that mean? I think but it, basically what it means is this, that every repository of death will break open and all the scattered substance of those who have walked upon the earth are reconstituted. Their souls which have been held in the agonies of Hades are reintroduced to bodies that have been resurrected and been, have been lain in death and now they all stand before the throne, the great white throne of God at the end of all the age. Here's what it says as well. It says, great and small are there. The kings of past kingdoms stand on even ground with those that they had once stood over. Rulers and ruled are all now before the great king. And what will their standing affect for them? What will they gain from their past wisdom or their wealth or their 60 or 70 years of transcendence over somebody else? This judge gives no respect to persons. He sees the heart and he knows all and he finds that all have sinned and fallen short of his righteousness and they all stand before him alike. I have a book that I've read not long ago. It was written by Peter Hitchens, who is the brother of Christopher Hitchens, who is an atheist. And I think I've given this illustration to you before. He was a pronounced atheist and he tells a story of visiting a hospital in France that was built in the Middle Ages. And when you would enter into the hospital, it was like a gospel track had been painted on the wall in the foyer or entryway of this hospital. And it was a great scene of the judgment of God. It is a picture of people rising up to judgment before the judgment seat of Christ. They are naked as they rise up, and ones that are rising up to go into heaven are clothed in right garments and sent up to heaven, and the others are sent out naked and they're cast into the pit of hell. And Hitchens, as he looks at it, says, I don't know if there's a God and I don't know if there's a judgment. And as he looks at the scene, the one thing that he noticed was most of the artistry that he sees that was represented from the Middle Ages 
has people dressed in the garb of the Middle Ages and so you can't identify it with it, but here were naked bodies. And as he looked at them, he couldn't tell what age they were from, what time period they were from. What struck him is they looked just like him. They looked just like his friends and his neighbors. The next thought he had was, I don't know if there's a God and I don't know if there's a judgment. But if there is a God and there is a judgment, I know where I'm going. I'm going into that pit. And it was a moment, a terming moment in this intellectual, this atheistic intellectual, in which he began to consider the possibility of judgment and a final utter justice. And it was the starting point that turned him on a journey of faith in which he found Christ as the answer for all of his sins. But here in this picture, great and small are all there, and you don't know which one was which. You don't know who the king was. You don't know who was the one who excelled in his society. You don't know which one lived in this great house, in the small house, who was poor, who was rich. You don't know. They're all there before the judgment seat. What is the basis on which they're judged? That's the next question we want to ask. We'll make this as point three. What is the basis on which this holy judge judges them? Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Look at verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Here are two different things. There is the book of life, and there are these other books. Let's look at the book of life first. They are judged by the book of life. At this point, the judgment is simple and it's straightforward. There's only basically one question that's being asked. Is their name written in this book? That's it. This book represents the simplicity of the gospel itself. Christ has died for our sins. He has suffered in the place for our wickedness. He has made a way to grant us His just forgiveness by paying the debt of our sins on our behalf. And the question for men and women is whether they have come confessing their sins to receive this payment that Christ has made at the cross. And at the moment that they receive this payment, their names stand written in the book of life on their behalf. Paul, speaking of Christians, has various different ways in which he refers to the Christians and those who have found salvation through Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, he asked for the church to pray for those who work with him in the presentation of the gospel. In Philippians 4, verse 3, he reminds them that these individuals, these workers with him, are Christians just like themselves. What he says is this, their names are written in the book of life. It's just, just another way of saying they're believers, they're true Christians. They have an honest confession of faith. So again, very simply, what is being judged here at the great white throne is whether a person has come in obedience and received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior through their repentance of sins and their faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 2, verse 16, speaks of a day when, quote, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, Paul writes, according to my gospel. According to my gospel. You see that? God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Well, what is Paul's gospel? You find that later in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess 
with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. There's the Gospel. Do you grasp how utterly important and consequential this decision, this confession, this moment of drastic faith is? It makes all the difference between heaven and hell. It's the standard before the great white throne. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, again, Paul speaks of a day when Jesus will be revealed from heaven with all of His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These who have not done this, he says, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The simple question is, where is your name written? What have you believed? Who have you trusted in? Who have you cast your life upon? Is your name written in the book of life, the book of the Lamb slain for your sins? Have you confessed Him alone as your Savior from the just punishment you deserved? Have you recognized that your sins deserve that punishment, but that He Himself has borne it in your place? Have you laid your faith claim upon Him and received His gift of everlasting life? This has been the Bread of Life, a program of the International Outreach Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism and its Associate Mission Church, Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our ministry and how your support can help us reach lost men and women around the world, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.